All right, well, let's open in prayer and we'll continue our worship. Father, I pray you bless our time. Thank you so much for uh, uh, everyone being here and worshiping together. And I hope that you're pleased with our, our fellowship and our worship and song. I know my heart was lifted up and I'm thankful for all those who participate and put in hard work to, to bring us uh, your service, service unto you. So we uh, pray that you bless this time. Help us all to understand your word, to unite it with faith, and um, seek to apply a diligent faith in our lives. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to talk a little bit about, we're going to move around a lot this morning, because uh, I'm just going to tie in the gospel and its application with uh, the foundations of or the implications of the gospel. We'll start with the implications and we'll go back and talk about the gospel itself because that's what's, of course, important. Uh, in, in the New Covenant, the, the, what, are the, what are the uh, commandments that John and everybody talks about? What are the commandments? When it says, you know, those who keep the commandments in the New Covenant. What are the, what are the commandments? Right? <coughs> It's not the Ten Commandments. Right? First John gives us the commandments, right? If you read the book of John, it also gives us the commandments. In First John, you, you see him say the same thing. You know, keep the, those who uh, keep the commandments. If you look at chapter um, 3, Verse 22, we'll start verse 21, sake of the flow, 21, it says, Beloved, if your heart does not, con- uh, does not condemn us, but if our hearts, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, this is out of this wonderful flow of context that we'll examine a little bit more later maybe, but it says, and Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing to him. So many people think in terms of the commandments of being, yes, you know, in commandments. It's like, no, we're not in the old covenant. The law was, was, was nailed to the cross. And so he explains to us, what are the commandments? This is, the, this is his commandment, that we believe in him or in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us, right? So you have one command that saves and one command that guides. These are the commandments of the new covenant. And they are constantly reiterated and pointed to in the openings and closings of books. It's believe in the Son, that saves you. Love as Jesus loved his brethren, that guides you, right? So that's the commandments. These are the, the new commandment, you know, John 13, when he has a new commandment I give you. And so when you look at the opening of books, like say, look at Ephesians. If you look down at verse 15, chapter 1, because you don't read my mind. <laughs> It says, for this reason, too, having heard of the, what? Faith. 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 Faith in the Lord Jesus, 
which exists among you and the and your love, love for all the saints. Right? In other words, he's excited about the fact that he's heard about their faith and their love. And this, of course, what the rest of the book really goes on to explain. It explains the gospel in the first two chapters, and after that it's how does faith and love work out. It does the same thing. Let's see, let's get to another book. If you look at Philippians, go to the next book. And if you look at uh, the prayer that he prays, 9 through 11, chapter 1, it says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in, all, in, in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless to the day of Jesus Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It's your faith that's, or your love is based upon your knowledge or your faith, right? Your faith. And so, if you look at uh, another little passage. Look at Coloss Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. Every book has this theme in it. Because this is the commandment. The two commandments are faith and love. So your goal is to master these two things. Have an assiduous faith and a, and a mature and understanding love. 1-4 says he's happy, he's praying for them again. He often puts it into a prayer. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love which you have for all the saints. After you get the gospel down, your whole life then boils down to understanding how to walk out faith and love. And you'll see him repeat this throughout all of it. Faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. If you look at, uh, let's see, Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. Again, his prayer is opening prayer. He says he's giving thanks for them, so forth and so on. Verse 2 and then verse 3 says, Const, uh, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord, uh, technically of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the, in the presence of our God and Father. This is the constant discussion. He's excited. He's, he's hearing about this. And he's giving thanks. He's thankful for hearing about their faith and their love, their work of faith, their, 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 their uh, maturity of love. Let's see what we got here again. Let's see, look at uh, 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 3. It's the same thing. Puts it in his thanksgiving. Second Thess says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Now, this is the focus. Faith and love. Faith and love. Faith and love. 
So there's another one. But he, by the way, just repeats this throughout. Um, <clears throat> Let's see what we got here. Look in First Timothy, next book over, chapter one. You see him in verse five. Well, for the sake of the flow, I want to read three through five just because I like context. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths, endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The administration of God is by faith. And he sums up too, again, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. faith. Love and faith. If you go down to verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. In other words, as they were applying that toward him and others. Go to the next book. Second Thess. What does he say? Yes. In this book, he splits them up between verses 5 through 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Timothy. Oh, excuse me. 2 Timothy. Yeah, thank you. I told him that whenever I, my brain glitches, just correct me. I'll be happy. I'm, I'm, I'm four books back already still. So. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure it dwells in you. For this reason, remind, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying out of hands, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, timidity, but of power and love and discipline. His focus again, faith and love. Now look at verse 13, the same chapter. Retain sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is the constant statement that he makes. <clears throat> of course he says it again in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy verse 10 you are following my teaching, conduct, purpose faith perseverance, uh, patience, love and perseverance let's focus if you look at Titus he actually says it at the end of the book the last verse, chapter 3 verse 15 is where he puts it in <clears throat> All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now look at Philemon, the next book. Chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith 
which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So the love toward the saints and the faith toward the Lord Jesus. I was saying the same thing. He opens every book or closes his book or speaks of it throughout the book. Faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. Because that's, this is a new covenant commandment. The faith is toward the Lord Jesus and the love is toward the saints. The, anyway, it continues on and on and on and on and on throughout this whole, throughout the rest of the scriptures. Not to have to continue. Look at Hebrews for, for the sake of, since we're close to Hebrews, look at Hebrews. Formerly known as Hey Bros. <laughs> hey Bros. What up? Where is that? There we are. Chapter 4, verse 2. I'll read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you have, uh, any of you may seem to have come short of it. How has someone come short of it? The way you come short of it, you know it, but you don't believe it. Verse 2 For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why is it that the word people hear don't profit them? Because it was not united by belief. That's what the word faith means, right? Belief. It was not united by belief in those who heard. To know something means nothing. The demons know it. Satan knows it. A lot of people know it. In fact, the many will actually know because he says many will come to be on that day and say, Lord, Lord, and will be cast away. So many know the information. The reason why you have differences of opinion in denominations isn't because the word of God isn't clear. It's because people don't believe it. And if you don't believe it, then you'll struggle to figure out then what it means because you don't believe what's actually being written. What's clear on the page. If you learn anything from the Old Testament that's most important if you read it carefully, you'll find constantly him chiding Israel because they sought signs and miracles and wonders to validate their various messages. And he constantly saying, but you've not kept to my word what I have written. You're looking outside of it. You're making it up. By the time Jesus came, they had exchanged the truth of God for their traditions, and now their human teachings were surpassing that which is of God's word, which is, of course, what largely happens in our day. Look at, um, in the same book, right? Chapter 11. Most of you know this one, verse 6. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, please him. For he who comes to God 
must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So can you please God apart from faith? It's literally impossible. You can't do it. That's a starting place. Because your belief is the basis of your love. So even if you try to love, but if you do it apart from an understanding of the gospel, you're going to fumble it and mess it up, and it's not going to be right. Amen. Preach. Something agrees with me. Romans 14. Look at that. Romans 14. He takes it a step further and says, rather than saying whatever is not as, if, if, if without faith it is impossible to please God, and he takes it one more step further and says, but he who doubts, verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. It's a long conversation, but there's a point at the end that I want you to, to recognize. Because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. sin. It's an error. That means, perspectively, you should be mature enough at every time, at every moment, in every part of your day to know exactly why you're doing what you're doing from this aspect of the gospel and from who you are and God's administration through Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that, that's attainable. It's attainable because Ephesians 4 says it is. He expects us to grow to the measure, the stature which belongs to the fullness of who? Of, of me? No. Of ministers? Of course not. Of Christ. In other words, the word of God was given so that you could grow to the stature of Christ on earth in the context of your life. As I say, married to the person of Christ or married to your wife and had your kids and had your job. You can grow to his stature in your life, according to Ephesians 4. In fact, you're expected to. To live out, you'd be able to live out your life the way he would live out his life if he were in your life. If his life was confined to the parameters of your life, you can attain to the same level of maturity he would, he has on the earth, in your existence, here. That's what the expectation is. If you are unified with him in the true knowledge of Christ, you can read it for yourself in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And so, because whatever is not a faith is sin, is it possible to please God apart from faith? That means you have to know what, what you believe, right? You have to understand. And this is why, now we go to John. Now we make it to John, Matt. <laughs> John chapter 3. This is why he blew Nicodemus' mind when he said what he said. Right? No need to read the first two verses. Nicodemus comes up. Jesus has just done all these wonderful miracles throughout the day. And then he did this atrocious thing in their eyes, which was whip out everybody out of the temple, cause a big ruckus, undignified, unnecessary. You could have just told us, right? Nope, we're going to make a whip all chilled out and can you imagine just the context of him making the whip on the stairs? It says, and he sat down on the stairs and he made a whip. Like he's sitting there and he's making this whip. And I'm like, what you doing, Jesus? 
Oh, just making this as a lip thing. What you doing? What's it for? Oh, you'll see. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and then he goes in and he starts, like, getting nuts on the animals and throwing over tables. There's money running every, going everywhere and there's kids who are screaming and women are screaming and animals are knocking people over. And there's just stuff going nuts, right? Stuff's being broken. The Pharisees are completely and utterly humili humiliated. All their, their, their underlings are humiliated. The temple guards are trying to figure out what's going on. Everybody's in a big ruckus. But this guy's just done miracles all week long, so we can't really just dismiss what he's done. We have to then question him, and he drops the gauntlet, right? You've, uh, you've, you've jacked up my father's house, right? You've made the den of thieves. So that's the context. He's, he's caused a, a horrible disruption in the community. And now it's nighttime, and he's chilling. And Nicodemus, naturally being sort of the, 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 the rational one in the group, probably had decently clean hands in the process of this thing, which is why he came to Jesus and said, okay, who are you? Let's figure out who you are. Because you can be very important and I need to pay attention. So he's humbling himself. And you see Nicodemus' character. He often humbles himself throughout the entire thing and even honors Christ at his death with a king's burial, with uh, frankincense and myrrh and all that stuff. So he believed Christ in the end. But he comes to him, hi, how you doing? And uh, yeah, we know you're from God because of the signs. And Jesus answered and said, and truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, it says again in the love translation, from above, the person cannot enter or see the kingdom of, of God, right? So now we ask you, do you believe that? Did Nicodemus believe it? He was supposed to believe it. Because this is what's important for you to understand. What does it mean to be born from above? Because at this point, he strips Nicodemus of all of his earthly significance. And it should strip any of you and me and anyone listening. Anyone in the world gets stripped of all their denominational beliefs and all their commitments and all their doctrines. Nothing means anything if you're not born from above, right? Somebody would say, it's unbelief that sends you to hell. No, it's not. No, it's not, because the demons believe. It's not having God birth you from above that keeps you from getting in. That's what keeps you from getting in. If you're not birthed from above, here on the earth, while you're existing here now, you do not enter heaven. You don't see it, you don't enter. You don't see it. Now, faith will get you to that point. We'll discuss that, but that's not how, right? Faith isn't the thing that gets you in. The demons believe in shudder, but their faith is, their, their knowledge and, and they, their faith isn't a real faith, not a saving faith, right? So a saving faith saves you because God, how, do you, how are you saved? By decree? No, you're saved for heaven by God birthing you from above. That's how you're saved. Now, you're saved from death and wrath by, by what? By his death. You're saved from death and wrath by the blood. Because he died. But you're not saved for heaven. Romans 5 makes it clear. You're saved from hell through the death. You're saved for heaven through the resurrection. And both are very important to understand. You're not saved for heaven through the death of Jesus Christ. If Jesus only died and didn't rise... As 1 Corinthians says, 
in chapter 15, we'd be most stupid people, miserable, pathetic, because we would be forgiven, but not allowed to ever enter heaven. So we'd be stuck in a fallen state, not loving God, not having a love in our heart, not having it being a new creation, not having a love in our heart, and yet not being able to be condemned. So we're just stuck in a miserable fallen state for all eternity. That sound nice? Is that what you want? Stuck on a fallen earth and a fallen body forever with a fallen soul just because of the blood of Jesus? Blood of Jesus don't get you in. Blood of Jesus sets you up to get in. The resurrection of Christ is what gets you in. And this is what we're discussing, the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus isn't raised, then we're doomed, right? And this is what he tells Nicodemus. So now you have 1,200 years of tradition plus that Nicodemus has to, has to decide on whether or not he's going to throw it in the trash can and put his value in what Jesus is saying. Now, this has always been true, right? I mean, he told Abraham that his righteousness was credited to him, so he was righteous. Right? David was said that blessed are those who are, are forgiven apart from the law and that his righteousness is apart from the law in the Psalms. So we know this from Deuteronomy 30 and the, the, the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant being talked about. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, the most ex extensive version of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. We know this to be true. So therefore, Nicodemus should have sort of known this, at least had an idea that I need God to do something inside of me in order for me to be with him. But he doesn't know it. And frankly, a lot of people today don't know it. They don't understand that you actually have to be born from God. That is to say, we have a location in the person who does it. Verse 5, right? Nicodemus is a little cheeky and says, uh, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus says, let me tell you the truth, the absolute truth. Unless one is born of water, that is say through your mother, water breaks, baby comes out, simple. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter a second, uh, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So now we have, can't see it in verse three, can't enter it in verse five. So we know where you're from, where you're born from, that's above. We know who does it, the spirit, right? So we have the two people. And that, that, that's, that's the, the, the technical data that, Nicodemus needs to know because Nicodemus, no matter how fancy pants you think you are with all your tassels and your robes and all your ceremony and all your sacrifices, not one sin was ever forgiven through the sacrifices, right? Hebrews 10. Not one sin was ever forgiven. In fact, it was worthless to do anything good for the eternal state of the human being. It kept them in the temporal gain, but not in the eternal. And so, this reality should hit Nicodemus, and it does, that unless God does something to him, he doesn't see and enter. So that means I need to figure out what do I need to do to get God to do this to me, right? What, how do I get God to make me new? We're going to talk about that briefly, but then we're going to jump right into what does this mean? What does this look like, right? What does it mean for God to birth me from above or... Because there are a lot of words he uses throughout the New Covenant in order to explain this, this truth. He calls us sons of God also in the book of John. 
the sons of God. So for the, the sake of time, he goes through and tells him, you know, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, if you're born of your mom, yes, you have to be born of your mother, but then you have to be born of the spirit. You have to be born of a person, a human, first, and then you have to be born of the spirit, second, in order to see and enter heaven. And the place that the Holy Spirit makes the new creation is in heaven, because it's from above. Further validation of that, of course, is in Galatians 4, where he says, heaven is our mother. Why? Because we come from there. It's the womb from which a new creation comes. That's why you're a legitimate citizen of heaven. You're a legitimate citizen because you came from there because that's what the Word of God says. Right? It says that heaven is our mother. You wouldn't say heaven is our mother if we didn't come from there. Because heaven is not a person or a, doesn't have a soul. Heaven is a place. It's like a womb. And so God is our Father who makes us from His own divine nature through the power of the Holy Spirit and then He sends that, that new spirit down. And this is what happens at salvation. Salvation happens very quick. But there's an order to it. First, He has to pay for your sins. He has to purchase through that payment your spirit and your body. After He purchases the spirit and the body, or applies that purchase that he has already made, then he then kills the old man spiritually, right? The spiritual old man. Then he creates the new one, or creates the new one first and kills the old one, plants the new one in. All that happens very, very quickly. But this is what the Word of God teaches constantly. Every single book, can't escape it. That's why Jesus constantly said what? John 4, 20 through 24. God is spirit and in him, he wants people to worship him in spirit and truth, right? Because he's a spirit. But your spirit has to relate to him because your flesh is still fallen. What's the second installment of salvation for us? The new body. Romans 8 says we await salvation. We await we, in hope. We await. What part of the salvation are we waiting? Because I'm already saved. My body, right? We're waiting for the redemption of the possession. He calls it the possession. Why? Because my body is still just a purchased possession. It's not his son yet. He calls it his servant or his slave. My spirit is his son. So when you see the word son or child or new creation, that's talking of your spirit. You see the word slave, it's talking of your body. That's why it says you are to beat your body and make it your slave. Why? Because it's God's slave and he wants you to present it to Jesus Christ in service to him against its will. Because it doesn't want to. Right? Our inside wants to, and our outside doesn't. Thus, Romans 7 clearly, clearly teaches and explains all that. And so, my spirit then, its mission, right? I am to present my body as a living and holy sacrifice, which is what? My spiritual service. My spirit serves God by getting my body, presenting it to Him, living and holy when it's neither living nor holy. It's neither living nor holy because it's a dead body and a body of sin. But I'm supposed to present it as if it's alive and already resurrected. <laughs> Not letting sin be king in my body parts. So this is the goal. And this is what we're going to look at this morning and further. He goes on to talk to Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, the way in which you get what I'm talking about 
And he sums up the concept of being born from above and born of the Spirit in this word, eternal life, right? We all know that word. So now he changes, and he says, being born from above and being born of the Spirit equals eternal life. Eternal life. Because God is eternal. Heaven is eternal. It's the place where we're from. You're created according to Him. Then you have His life in you. It is eternal. As I say, it cannot be un <laughs> taken away. And so he goes to this little discussion. We won't go through all the details of that. And he says, basically, right, in verse uh, 14 through 16, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What he means is, what does it say in Deuteronomy 21, 23? If a man is hung on a tree, he is cursed, cursed right? So it's a standard that if in the Old Testament, if a man was hung on a tree, that he was accursed. It was a, it was a standard of God. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus something that would blow his mind. He says, Nicodemus, the... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up. He would understand what that meant. He would mean, so you're saying, Jesus, you have to be cursed. Bingo. Radio. That would blow his brain right there, right? Nicodemus, this is far outside of his pay grade. And, you know, he's, he, I mean, if he read Isaiah 53, he would get it, right? Maybe he did. But he says, I've got to be accursed. And here's the thing, if you believe that's a good thing, then you can have eternal life, right? So for verse 15, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Believes what? What am I supposed to believe? Because Nicodemus would be like, believe what? That you're accursed? Right? This is an absurd discussion, stupid and ridiculous in Nicodemus' mind. Absolutely ludicrous. That the, a, a prophet of God would have to be accursed. If I believe it, I get eternal life. This is a stupid discussion. It's going to get stupider to somebody who has intelligence. <laughs> Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him for what? To be accursed. Context. Verse 15, 14, right? He gave him to be hung on a pole. And Nicodemus, if you believe that whole mess... You can avoid hell, perishing, and you can have eternal life. That's, if you believe that God's love was the problem that results in me being cursed, if you understand that, Nicodemus, then you can have God birth you from above through the Spirit and have eternal life. This, to Nicodemus, of course, he, you know, he's probably melting down. I have no idea what you're talking about. This is all very stupid. But you're a prophet of God, what can I say? Right? Because he doesn't unfold anything to him here. He doesn't fully explain it, does he? He doesn't unfold the truth of this. Now, just as a cursory before we jump into it, let's look at Romans 3, because Romans 3 is the explanation of John 3, 16. And then we're going to jump into what I wanted to talk about today, what we are going to talk about today, which is what it means to be born from above. But I do want to cover the, the technical payout, right? Normally we'll start earlier in the chapter and kind of roll through, but I just want to jump straight on in, dive right on in to verse 24. In verse 24, 
We've already established that we're all sinners and the law can't save, verses 9 through, through 20, and that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we've all sinned, verse 23, right? And all this stuff. He's all flowing, just setting it up. He's setting it up. We're without hope unless we believe what Christ believes, believe what God believes. And God's righteousness is the, the question on the floor. Verse 23, 21 says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested. Why are we talking about the righteousness of God? Because God's righteousness was actually in question for over 4,000 years because he did not kill Adam. And when he didn't kill Adam by sentencing of the law, Adam, he said, well, Adam died. Yeah, he died of sin. He didn't die because God killed him based upon the law's sentencing. God gave him a promise rather than a curse. Right? Now, Send the seed of the woman to crush Satan's head as he will be bruised. He blessed Adam in that statement. If Adam and Eve believed that, then they would be saved. That was the gospel for them. And they did. Because in 4.1, it says she believed that she had actually got, conceived the Messiah. She said, I've got a man child, Yahweh. It doesn't say with the help of, that's why it's in italics in your Bible. She actually believed she got, she's like, God said, the seed of the woman, I'm the woman. Here's the seed. Cain's going to be the savior of the world. <laughs> Wrong. You know, Cain's going to be a son of the devil. Right? He didn't know, she didn't know that it was going to be another 4,000 years before this promise actually was fulfilled. Abraham didn't know that it was going to be another close to 1,800 years before his promise was fulfilled, right? He was thinking Isaac in Genesis 12. God's thinking Jesus in Genesis 12, as Galatians says. So we see this, God's righteousness is the problem. God's righteous, God is loving, can't question that. God's loving, but is he righteous? This is what we have to quantify. Because if he's not righteous, he might love us and one day might wake up and have a bad day and just toss us all out of heaven. Because he might do what's wrong. <laughs> so I want to make sure God's righteous and loving so that if I am loved by him and saved by him, he might just not chuck me out as he wakes up one morning and wants to have a new plan and have a new, a new ambition. I'm bored with these, this new family I made after 10,000 years. I think I'll flush them down the toilet and start over. You know, Because if he's not righteous, right, then I can't trust him. And this is his discussion. He wants to make sure that you and I know that he is in fact righteous. So his righteousness needed to be talked about. It was in the, in the law and the prophets. They spoke about that righteousness because he hadn't demonstrated perfect righteousness yet. Right? He had a credit card. He bought it. And then he was going to pay for it 4,000 years later. But in the meantime, the angels and Satan, everybody looking at him, is like, you hadn't done what's right. You didn't kill Adam. Worse than that, you blessed Cain and you let all these other people be born. And even worse than that, when they died, some of them, you didn't make them go to hell because you made them new. And now you're in a real pickle because what justifies that? I mean, what justifies you making them new creations and making them shiny, glorious people and putting them over there in paradise next to hell? What do you, how, do you, how do you get away with that? What's the, how, do you, how do you rectify that situation? 
And so that was the question on the floor. Most humans think, oh God, it's not merciful enough. Why does he love people? Why does he cause bad things? Heaven thought, how does God maintain his righteousness when he hasn't, didn't execute Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel? What, like, how does he get away with this? That's heaven's, that's an intelligent understanding. And that's why the scripture speaks to it. And so verse 24, jumping straight to it, says, we are being righteous or becoming righteous. The word justified is just the word righteous. If we were Greeks, we wouldn't be changing the words all the time. Really annoys me how men want to make things confusing by changing the words. He's using the word righteousness as a theme throughout this book, that which is right as opposed to wrong. And this is the same word in the Greek. It's not different. It's not justified in the sense it's just righteous. We become righteous, thus justified, as an implication. But that's not the fullness of the meaning. We become righteous as a gift. By his grace, or his favor, through the payment, which is Christ Jesus, right? So you got the thing, like we've talked about before, I take my kids out to ice cream. They get... The gift, right? The gift is the ice cream. And so they get the ice cream because I'm nice, because I love them. And, but it costs me money, right? The redemption means payment. And so it costs me money. It costs them nothing because I'm nice. It costs me something. This is the discussion. You get something for nothing and God has to pay for it, right? And who's the money? Jesus is the money. The money is, the payment is, which is in Jesus Christ. He's the money. Why? Because is a bull a man? No. Is a turtle dove a man? No. Is a sheep a man? No. So they can't pay for a man. Can't kill an animal and pay for a man. That's why no sacrifice ever forgave sin and did nothing for them except keep them in the earthly game which didn't save them. In fact, it was a terrible game to play. Do what's right, I'll bless you. Do what's wrong, mm, curse you. What, what do they do most of the time? Wrong. wrong. Not a very good game to play, right? Because God don't lose. And they lost a lot. It was bad. Here he says, Jesus was the money. Now, now he explains to you why his righteousness was in question and why Jesus was the money. It says, whom, whom's a relative pronoun, going back to God, God displayed whom? Subject, verb, direct object. God's a subject, displayed is the verb, whom is the direct object, that relative pronoun that goes back to Christ. So you just supply that. God displayed Christ Jesus publicly as a sacrifice, this appositional Noun, redefining Christ. So you have God displayed Jesus Christ publicly as a sacrifice. Propitiation just means sacrifice. In his blood, what happens if you lose all your blood? Yeah. You die. So it's a death sacrifice. Through faith. Whose faith? God's a subject of the sentence. It's not our faith. It's not Jesus' faith here. This is God's faith. As I say, God did not set forth Christ on the basis of his law. He set it forth on the basis of what he believed would accomplish the payment for sin. It's God's faith. 
because his plan was one book and his law book was the other. And the plan book was not allowed to be read and the law book was allowed to be seen. And so he didn't let anybody read it. In fact, the, the angels had to look over the shoulders of the prophets to learn the Old Testament and the New. They were not privy to it. They didn't understand it. So there was this accusation. Thus Satan was accusing us and accusing him of sinning, not being worthy. And so he says, God did this demonstration. Why? This was to demonstrate. What did he demonstrate? His righteousness. Our righteousness? Jesus' righteousness? God's righteousness. Why? Because he didn't kill Adam. That means you got to kill somebody. Somebody's got to die. Somebody's going to die. God had to kill a human being. And that human being had to be worth more than all humans, but yet be just only a human. And the only way he accomplished that was by God getting in the body. And of course, that takes on the worth of the creator. Therefore, that one single body, only really worth one man's life, now takes on the worth of God and therefore can technically pay for all men. Otherwise, if it's just not God in the body, he's doubly in trouble for killing a righteous man who can't ascend and letting an unrighteous man get off the hook. But as Philippians explains, he was able to kill him because God could not be held down and was able to burst through through the condemnation. God condemned, condemned him to hell, but he could not be held down because he's God. So he received a proper condemnation, a proper slaughtering, right? In order to pay for all the sins, he had to be paid like Isaiah 53 says. He had to be punched in the face, mocked, arrested. He had to be spit on. He had to be uh, put the crown of thorns on. He had to receive the mockery of the robe. He had to receive the mockery of uh, the, the beatings. Uh, like I said, the, the punch in the face, the hit on the head with the, with the rod, the split his head open. Also, the, 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 the beating of the, of the, of the cat of nine tails. And, and of course, yeah, you know, there's, in other words, if you did a little sin, he took that. And if he did a big sin, he did a big sin, he's taken that. So if you back talk your mom, does I deserve to be smacked in the face? He took that. You know, right? He took everything. That's why the entire law was nailed to the cross. And if you did the murder, then he died for you, right? So he died to pay for sin because we're born into sin, we're worthy of death. But he also paid for the particular individual sins, Isaiah 53, right? It explains the whole thing. He says, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his what? He did what? Passed over sins previously committed. And if you're righteous, you cannot do that. You're not allowed to just pass over sins and then say, offer a bowl. Right? Say, Andy, you know, let's say somebody comes in and kills someone you love. You go to court, you want to see the guy judged properly, right? And somebody, the judge gets up and says, all right, you're sin, you did it, you did the evil. Now, all for a bull. You know, pay for, pay for your sins and you go free. Right? Be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that's unacceptable. That's right, the law did nothing. But then he offers a man on his behalf. Right? Now you can't argue because a man is a man. Somebody's going to die. It's either the man who did it or someone in his place. We might not like it, but, <laughs> but he gets off the hook 
But it doesn't matter. A, a proper justice has taken place. And that's what happened. Wasn't the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament the atonement by which one sprinkled over on the mercy seat on a yearly basis allowed God through his righteousness to pass over the sins of the people because of the atonement of the blood of the sacrificial animals as opposed to the blood of Jesus being redemptive as opposed to atoning? It only allowed him to pass over the sins of the people only in respect to their national identity as God's people. Because they were God, God's people, but they weren't eternally God's people. So they were only, that blood only served to keep them in the game as Israelites playing the game. It did not give them eternal Passover because, right. because there was no Passover, there was no payment for the rest of the people of the world, and God endured them. So they, they were, that sacrifice only allowed for them to stay in the game yeah. and, that, and, and remain Israelites or God's people from a little p, right? Mm -hmm. We're God's people with a big p because we're eternally God's people. They were temporally God's people. They would be God's people and still die and go to hell, right? We're God's people because we're born from above. And their eternal salvation still came through faith. There, yes, yeah. Abraham was born from above. You know, uh, it was big P. Big P, right? That's why you'd have people in Israel who were truly saved were born from above because they truly believed God's promises. They didn't put their faith in the deeds of the law. They put their faith in the promise of, of God to solve the problem uh, at some point. And so now their faith could be like, yeah, this is my faith to play the game is still important to God. Right? It's still important I kill these animals to stay an Israelite and stay and not be kicked out of the camp. Right? It's still important because this game represents the coming of Christ. So that's an important game to play. Uh, an important game to be faithful doing. But the game did nothing. and It, it, it didn't, didn't eternally bless them. It just temporally blessed them. It was the Deuteronomy 8. You do what's right, you're blessed. You do what's wrong, you're cursed. And that's a rough game to play. And it, and it was. It was hard. It was a hard game. They failed. Um, that's why he says, in the future, when I do establish you as my people, I'll save a third of you in a day, and you'll be my people. Only then do they become God's people collectively with a big P. Right now, um, they're only God's people with a little P, and they're not even that right now. They're just Now they're under the waiting, the promise of a sort of a collective new covenant salvation to happen to a group of them at some point in history. Uh, right now, we are God's people. They are not. People always say, oh, it's God's people. Yeah, God's people to receive a curse or a blessing. Deuteronomy 28. They're only God's people to play that game. They're not, they're not more special than the body of Christ. They're, they're, they're going to be blessed one day collectively for what they have had to endure. Bless their hearts. They did have a rough go playing the law. The law was rough on them because they failed it. Read Romans, Hebrews 9. That explains all that yet. What I just talked about is explained in Hebrews chapter 9. If, if they are saved, though, so is there not a benefit to, like, and maybe I'm taking this out of context, but when he talks about the salvation first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, like, yeah. is there not a benefit to being Hebrew? Not eternally. There's no Jew, there's yeah, no Greek, there's right? No male, no female, no Jew, no Greek, no Scythian, no slave, no free. It doesn't matter. What you, you're saved is saved, right? It's new creation. That's what matters. 
Um, however, the, the, the benefit is the honor they will receive for the, for the hard job they had. Like the early, the early Jew, Jew, Israelites, they say Jews, the early Israelites had a rough go of maintaining the law and, and walking by faith during that whole stint of, of their administration. And consequently, they will be rewarded accordingly. And so I believe that their reward and their honor in heaven will be special. I think the 24 elders or 2012 of the Old Testament, you know, uh, saints that were the highest and 12 of the new, the, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, you know, and they're all Jews, you know. So I, I think that um, they, they will receive that, a special place of honor in heaven for the, the labor and the hardship that they had to go through to represent uh, God's uh, coming of his Messiah through a law system that was brutal upon them. And that they fail that miserably uh, often. Uh, so, uh, so there is benefit in that way, and it's, it was an honor. It was an honor for them to to be given that responsibility, and I think heaven will reflect that. But as far as salvation itself, nothing, nothing. It's no different whatsoever. We're God's people. They're God's people because you're born from above or you're a new creation, right? Period. So going back to the text. So he says, this is to demonstrate the righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins. If you're perfect, you can't do that. Now, verse 26, he says, for, this, for the demonstration, again, God's demonstrating something. He wants us to see something of his righteousness at that particular time because Jesus said, my time's not yet come, my time's not yet come, time is here, right? He says, so that he would be righteous. It's very important you understand the technicality. If God doesn't kill Jesus, he loses his righteousness. Like he becomes a sinner. This is why no man can be saved apart from the name of Jesus because God's own righteousness was maintained and eternally established never to be challenged again because Jesus Christ died and paid for it, right? So his love goes back to the John 3, 16, God so loved the world. That was the problem that needed to be solved. And the problem was it's not righteous to love an unrighteous man. You have to kill them according to the righteous standard. But he loved him. He didn't kill him. That means someone has to die in his place. And this was the solution. And it was a brilliant solution, but a horrible solution. Broke God's heart to do it. And it says, for it, it, uh, demonstrate demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous. It's an infinitival clause. For him to be Infinitable clause is a state of being. For him to be in a state eternally of righteousness. If God does not kill Jesus, he loses that. But now that he has killed Jesus, he pre presented him as a sacrifice, he has maintained and established his righteousness forever, and he wanted to demonstrate that publicly. Why? Because the angels publicly saw him love Adam and not kill him. So, that being the case, now he says, and the one, and this in the Greek, this is all jacked up here, but, and the one making righteous, the one out of the faith of Jesus. It's not in Jesus, it's out of the faith of Jesus. Naturally so, because it's Jesus' faith that we have to believe what he believes in order to be saved. The Greek is not in, it's of and some of your Bibles will say of, and some of them won't. And if you have a good study Bible in the column, it'll say literally of the faith of Jesus. So, um, but it's an important distinction. 
You have to believe what God believes and what Jesus believes in order for God to establish you as righteous. Right? Now we look at what that means. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is where faith comes into play. It's very important for you to understand. Ephesians 1, we could go to many places, right? But this, I like this one the most. Verse 19. He's in this prayer and he's saying he wants them to know what is the hope of their calling, what are the riches of the inheritance. But in verse 19, he says, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his mind? So he wants us to know God did something to you and me. This is where it gets down to this born from above. Like, what does it look like for God to birth us from above? How much power would it take? What, was the, what, would, be, what, would, what would the implications of that be? Like, how would that work itself out? Is that an easy thing for God to do? Is that a difficult thing for God to do? He gives us the answer. When he says when he created the heavens and the earth, he says he spoke them into existence. Piece of cake. Threw these, flung the stars. Nothing, just like throwing cards in the air. No big deal, right? But what kind of power did it take for God to make you or me new? Well, he explains it. He says right in verse 19, he wants us to know the surpassing greatness of his power, as God's power, toward you who believe. Right? So when your faith is united with the word of God, you have power from God put towards you. How much power? A little bit? He explains. This, is, this power is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. You know what the strength of your might is? One rep max. You're one rep max. Everything you got in one moment, and you can do nothing more. Right? The strength of your might. So if your might, like, ah, you're screaming, you're push everything you got, it's the full strength of all your might. Right? He says, I want you to know that I did that toward you already at salvation. And you didn't even feel it. But that's what happened. You say, was there an example of him doing that to someone else? Is there someone I can look at? Yes. So before he continues to talk about us, by the way, in order to, to help you understand this, let's jump right to the continuation of verse 19. And the continuation of verse 19 is technically in 2.4. Technically it's 2.6, but I like to read from 2.4. You can, you can do that. And 2.4 is the continuation of 1.19. But he takes a break. And if you don't know he's taking a break, you can get lost. Right? So in 2.4, he says, but God being rich in mercy, because, uh, because of his grace, loved, uh, blah, blah, blah. But God being rich in mercy, because of his grace, loved, uh, great love. Uh, my Bible kept flipping over and deceiving me. I was like, I'm, I'm, no, I'm jacking this up. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans our uh, transgressions, made us alive together with Christ for grace, by grace you have been saved. And then he says, 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies or in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Now you look at verse 20. 20 is the is his is his giving you an example. But this is what he did. Verse 19 continues technically in 2:6, but I like reading 2 4 through 6. But his great power that he exerted toward you, that took all of God's strength in a moment, was to raise you up with Christ and to seat you with him. The question isn't, that did it happen? The question is, do you believe it? Right? And it's a completed act, eternal life. Right? It's not, did it happen? It's, do you believe it? If you believe it, you'll view yourself very differently. Not just some ideal, not just some adoption, but you're not really worthy but an actuality of who you are. He says, the same power was exerted toward you, now, he wants you to know about, in verse 20, was exerted toward Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens. The question isn't, did it happen? The question is, do you believe it? Right? We can all believe, oh yeah, he rose Jesus' body from the dead, it's a spiritual body, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, it's, it's glorious, it's eternal. Romans 6 says it can't die anymore. The first body, you can kill it. <laughs> Second body, you can shoot it full of hose, it ain't gonna die, right? Maybe you just like matrix this stuff or it bounces off of them, who knows? <laughs> shoot with a bullet, shoot with RPG, doesn't matter, it goes boink, boom, he just walks out, you know, dusts it off. Don't know how it happens. His body can't die, can't be hurt, can't be affected by sin, can't be affected by a fallen world. His body is impenetrable, right? We know this to be true. So if you want to know what God did to you, you have to look at Jesus. We get the physical example of what God did inside of you by looking at the, uh, the or we get the spiritual, uh, the spiritual reality of what God did inside of you by looking at the physical example of Jesus Christ. The physical example of Jesus Christ is a glorious body that cannot die, it's eternal, can't be affected by sin, cannot sin, and therefore you have this new creation, right? This is what he did to Jesus Christ. This is which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's that power, it took all of God's power in one moment to raise Jesus from the dead. The working of the strength of his might, right? One rep, everything he got, boom. Why? Because Jesus' body was made on the basis of the divine nature, which is why 2 Peter 1.4 says, you're partners of the divine nature. Now, spiritually, because Jesus' body is a divine body, and your spirit, if new, is made off of his divine nature. Thus, you're a partner. Then it says, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through desire. That's a second Peter 1 4. So he says here, he has exalted, he 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 raised Jesus, seated him at the right hand, he goes on brook. He kind of takes a break, and he exalted him, and he did all this stuff, right? And then you get lost. And then chapter 2, verse 1, you think it's a different chapter, when it's not. He's like, oh, by the way, before we get into this good thing God did toward you and the power he exerted toward you, let me talk about how bad you were. Oh, and you were dead in your transgressions and sin, which you formerly walked in the court of the blah, 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 right? And then, but God being rich in mercy, you know, he sets it up. Whereas, technically, he could have said, 119, 26, got it. Because that's technically the order of the teaching. He exerted all of his power towards you in a moment when he raised you from the dead and seated you with him. Isn't that good news? That's how he 
birthed you from above. God literally made you from his own divine nature spiritually because Christ is of his divine nature. No one would debate that. You are raised up with him identically, the same power toward Christ, same power toward you spiritually. This is the truth, whether you believe it or not. And he says, so in the ages to come, I might show you this, right? Where God's workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He sums it up. Verse 10 is a summary of what he said from verse 19 all the way through 2.9. For you, we are God's workmanship, poiema, masterpiece, master craftsmanship. We're God's master craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus. Stop there. Created in respect to. In Christ Jesus would be in respect to. And you have to see the word in. It's generally it's either inside or it's in respect to. So if I say, I made this, this thing in respect to one, this one over here, and you see this one is over here, it looks identical to it. Yes, in respect to means you made something in respect to something. So he says, you were created in respect to Christ Jesus, which of course is what we just read in chapter one, verse 19 and 20, and chapter two, verse six. We already read that, we know that, but he sums it up for us and puts it in one little sweet little verse so that we can then understand and see it, right? You're his master craftsmanship created in respect to Christ Jesus for good works which God preordained that we'd walk or prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Then he continues to look at 4.24, right? Now you get the application of this, which is very important because what's the application of this faith and love and that me being a new creation, now we bring it all together. Because this is, this is the text that will help us bring that together. He says, uh, for the sake of flow, uh, we won't read 17 and following, but you know, don't walk like the Gentiles. You're not a Gentile. Summed up. Got it. Next, you didn't learn Christ in that way. You've heard the truth. Got it. 22. And then he says, uh, now, in verse 22, he says, that in reference to your former manner of life, What's a former manner of life? Behaviors. The behavior, right? So what if you're a baseball player? You've got a former manner of life, right? But you're not a baseball player anymore, right? You're just a dude. <laughs> so you have former manner of life. Now you don't have that life, right? And so it's a behavior or it's an occupation. It's an existence, right? So he says in reference to the former manner of life, you lay aside the old man. Why can't you lay aside the old man? He doesn't say lay aside the old man, the old self, the old anthropos. Why doesn't he say lay aside the old self? Why does he say just in reference to your former manner of life? In other words, lay off the behavior of the old man, but not the old man. Why would you not lay off the old man? Because there is no old man. He was crucified with Christ, killed, and removed. Right? You all know that already. You all knew that. I'm going too slow for you. <laughs> because there is no old man. That's the whole point of the new covenant. Removing the old thing. Replacing it with the new. Anyone who's in Christ's new creation, old thing has passed, new has come. Take out the old heart, put in the new. Take out the old spirit, put in the new. Right? That's the whole point. 
circumcision, Colossians 2, take out the old, put in the new. That's the whole point. God took out the old man, crucified it with Christ, Romans 6, or maybe you don't know that, he says. Maybe you don't know that anybody who's entered into his baptism is baptized into his death. The question isn't, did you die at salvation with Christ? The question is, do you believe it? Then what do we say? You read the scriptures to believe, believe it. And you believe it like a child. child. You don't read the scriptures to know it. You don't read the scriptures to memorize it. You don't read the scriptures to be smart, to have the answers. You read the scriptures to believe it. And if you do that, your eyes will be open because you're reading it to believe it. That means you're uniting your reading with faith. And faith is a choice in the heart. Where you, inside your heart, inside your being, choose to believe what is being communicated on the page. And when you do that, then it's rewarded. When you don't do that, you write theologies. Because you don't know what you're reading. I don't understand this, so it must not be true. So he says here, you lay aside the old man's behavior because the old man is dead, but what you do have left over in the flesh is the behavior of the old man which did exist. It's in the brain. Your brain remembers everything. In fact, it's still being corrupted because it says which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. My brain will continue as it takes in data from the world to be corrupted because it's fallen. So, that being the case, he says, he goes, so therefore, and be, so you put off the behavior, is all I can put off, and be renewed in my mind, my spirit's brain, my spirit's mind. It's always goofy when it says something like the spirit of your mind. It's the spirit's mind. It's possessive, right? The spirit's brain, the spirit's thinking part. Remember, your spirit, your body fits your spirit. It's not that your spirit gets shoved into your body. Your spirit has two seeing ports, and guess what? They're right here where our bodies are. Our spirit has two hearing parts, and guess what? They're right here where our bodies are. Our spirit has a speaking piece, and guess what? It's right here where the body exists. And our spirit has, guess what? Four, eight fingers and two thumbs, you know? And they just happen to be the same place that our physical ones are. What do you know? So when Moses and Elijah showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know who they looked like? Moses, Moses and Elijah. <laughs> with all ten fingers and ten toes and their mouth right where it is and their ears right where it is and their eyes right where it is because our bodies fit over the spirit. That's all. So that without my, without my eyes, I can't see spiritually. Right? If you go blind, is my spirit blind? No. My body's blind. Technically, my spirit can see. It's just I can't see through the portal yet because God, in his wisdom, connected the two until death. My spirit isn't deaf or blind or weak. If my arm goes lame, is my spirit's arm lame? No. So, therefore, you know, it, this is just a shell. This is a shell. And the shell that's left after my old man was taken out remembers everything about my old man and even worse, continues to develop in it if I feed that. So if I feed it the worldly information, it continues to develop in the worldly information. That's why it says be renewed in your spirit's brain. Because being a new creation doesn't mean you get a download anymore than Jesus got a download. Did Jesus have to grow in wisdom and knowledge? Yes. We do too. You don't get born from above and he just goes, doo, 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 boom, you know the word. There you go. <laughs> you, know, you know nothing. You're like a little baby, like all these little babies born. The difference is that we can grow very, very quickly. Right? We don't have this time 
problem of needing to maturate in order to grow. We are a baby, but we can grow very, very quickly in Christ. And so we have to put off the old man and we have to inform the new brain of the soul or the brain of the spirit with spiritual truth so as to be able to walk in it. Because otherwise you can't assess your thinking. The flesh will often be religious. It'll be like, you know, I like this religion thing. God's pretty good. He blesses us. So uh, I'll take over. I know how to do this. I was raised Baptist, you know, whatever. So uh, don't worry. Don't think about faith or anything. Uh, we'll just perform. No, that's not okay. Right? So he says, be renewed in your spirit's mind. And then put on the new self. You're putting on not the behavior of the new self. You're putting on the new self. In other words, on the outside, thus the behavior. So you have a new self. You are a new self. And he tells you something about this new anthropos that you are. And he says, you put on this new self. And it, they translate it. People struggle to translate this because it's so magnificent. It's so ridiculous. Right? He says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created. Now, it doesn't matter if you believe that or not. That's true. Has been created in righteousness and holiness. And it should say in true righteousness and true holiness, technically in the grammatical construction of the sentence. In true righteousness, and so God has created you like him in a few ways, and he didn't create you like him in some ways. You're not all-knowing. You don't know everything. You're not everywhere. You can't, you know, create junk. But in the way that you need to be like God, you are like God. Righteousness, holiness, purity, glory. Those who are justified, he glorified, right? Romans 8. It's not a matter of whether it happens. It's a matter of whether you believe it. See, you have to unite what it says with your faith, whether you believe it or not. Only then can you truly rejoice, truly rejoice. Not fabricate rejoice. I'm rejoicing because I'm supposed to. I'm giving thanks because I'm supposed to. Why do you think he never writes to the sinners at Ephesus or to the sinners at Colossae? Who does he write to? Saints. The saints. It's because that's who you are. You are a holy one. You're holy because you were created holy and righteous just identically to God's holiness and righteousness because that's what the scripture says. Right? He created you in true holiness and true righteousness in God's likeness. And it says it actually more spectacular in the Greek than that. But the most simple of, of prepositions, kata. Kata. Kata theon. It's one of the most beautiful words I've ever... Kata is according to, and theon is God. Kata theon. Which means according to God. He created you according to God. If you're created according to wood, what are you? You created according to glass, what are you? You created according to God, what are you? It's tough to say it, isn't it? Right. Does it make it any less true? Why do you think you're called God's children, joint heirs with Christ? Why do you think John 17 says, they are one as we are one, they in us and us in them? It's not a matter of whether it's true, it's a matter of whether you believe it. Right? Because it's true. It's true. It's just a matter of you believe it. And it's the key is believe it toward yourself. Because if you do, you'll say thank you. Instinctively, the fruit of lips, Hebrews 13, will instinctively say thank you. That that's what quantifies me as his child. That's what makes me his child. 
right? And from that, you will then do what he says. From that, now you begin to walk by faith. And this will be the close of our discussion. Because Ephesians talks about it so lovely. Verse 25, therefore. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Because he's pointing back to verse 24. So often you have people say, okay, we're done with that. Now let's talk about the tables of uh, the home or the blah, 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 this nonsense. Completely disregard the fact that, that everything that he's about to say is going to be out of verse 24. And verse 24 is out of 2.10. And verse 2.10 is out of 1.19 and 2.6. Right? And those two, frankly, are out of Chapter 1, verse 4. <laughs> adoption of sonship. What does it look like to be adopted as sonship? To have God, all of God's power in a moment to make you a new creation on the basis of his own essence so that you're truly holy and truly righteous. And because of that, verse 25, he says, lay aside falsehood, each one of you, uh, with his, uh, and speak truth, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In other words, why is it that I should not lie? Does God lie? If I'm created on his basis, should I lie? No. I don't lie, not because it's wrong or right. The law has been nailed to the cross. You cannot put liar over my head and condemn me anymore. That's why there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But why is it that I, I would not lie? Because my father doesn't lie. And I am his child. And I'm made of his essence internally, and that's why I don't lie. See, that's a relational issue out of the power of God making me someone. And if I do that, I actually will experience power. What happens if you create what I call new T law? New T law, don't lie. What are you going to want to do? Lie. Don't touch the grass. You don't want to touch the grass. I mean, it's just the way it goes. People do it all the time. They create new T law, disregard the gospel, completely miss the point. And so, this is a situation that should set you free. Oh, yeah, I shouldn't lie because, it doesn't say because it's wrong. It says because we're members of one another. And going back to verse 24, because I'm created on God's likeness. And it doesn't help my brother, being a member of my brother, to lie. Look at another thing. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You say, people take that again and just miss the whole point. We're supposed to be angry. You're not like God if you're not angry. You're angry against sin, anger against evil, anger against all these horrible things in the world. If you're not angry, you're not like God at all. Because he's angry. And to be his child, you should be angry. You just don't sin. Who, who in Revelation 5 is the only one worthy to break the seal and open its scroll? The Lamb, the Lamb of Slain. Is God worthy? No. Why? Because he loved Adam. That's why John 5 says he's given all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. It's a technical reality that God, because he dedicated his administration toward love and he gave the judgment to the Son, but he's still angry. In fact, Romans 1 says his wrath is storing up, but he can't do it. Who does it for him? Jesus. Jesus is the one who does it. Why? Because he took, he took the beating for us. Therefore, he'll be the one to do the judgment on the world. So if God were to judge the world in and of himself, 
he would sin. He would sin. It says no one was found in heaven or earth or under the earth worthy to open the scroll. Not the Holy Spirit, not the Father, only the Lamb. Right? So, he says, being angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down your anger. He says, don't give an uh, opportunity for the devil. Right. In other words, be angry. Don't sin. Resolve it. Understand. Love your enemy. Right? Give it over to Christ. He says, cast your, your cares on him, your burdens on him. Recognize that he will bring justice. He will bring vengeance. Blah, blah, blah. Right? Whatever, so forth and so forth. What are the context is? He'll, he'll get it done. It's a believer that needs discipline. God in Christ will do it. Right? If it's a fallen person and... and they need salvation. You should be praying for their salvation, not for their judgment. Anyway, because if they get saved, then they're your brother. Look what he says. Verse He goes on, verse 26. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so they would have something to give and something to share with those who are in need. Does God steal? No. no. God gives. He works and he gives. He's a giver. Write this down in the, in the, on your heart. You always want to be a giver, not a taker. You always want to be a giver, not a taker. Jesus says more blessed to give than to receive. There always has to be a cycle of poor and wealthy because love can't cycle. If you're poor in knowledge, I have the knowledge, I give it away. If you're poor in service, somebody has service, they give it away. If you're poor in wealth and somebody else has wealth, you give it away. That's the way love works. Without need, there's no cycle of love. But you should seek to be a giver, not a taker. Right? You should seek to be a giver, not a taker. There's more to that discussion. That's a whole discussion in itself. But God gives. He doesn't steal. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word which is building, builds up, right? Edifies according to the need of the moment, and it gives grace to those who hear. Why? What does God do right now? What are we reading? Good news. There's no better news than the blood of Jesus Christ paid for all sins, and he created you on the basis of his own divine nature, Thus, you escape damnation and you're fit for eternal uh, dwelling. What greater news is that? And then he says this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were called. You were sealed to the day of redemption. Your body sealed up. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and, and anger and slander be put away from you with all malice. The last verse you have to correct in your Bible is if it's wrong. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, showing favor, not forgiving. The word forgiveness is afe, the word grace, showing grace to each other, just as God in grace has, God in Christ has shown grace to you. God in Christ has shown grace to you. It's the word charis, the word for grace. The word forgiveness is never used because we're not in the old covenant. We, our covenant is not an issue, a covenant of forgiveness toward one another. It's a covenant of grace toward one another, and thus the word forgiveness is never used for us to use toward one another. Only God forgives. We show grace because God showed us grace, and that's the reality of the situation. Uh, so there in Colossians 3.13, they both jacked that up, and that is just flat-out religious nonsense is what that is because that nullifies the, the impact of the new covenant by putting the word forgive there. Uh, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, showing grace to each other, just as God in Christ has shown grace to you. And so that's, that's the, the way of life, right? The general flow of life. And look what he says in 5.1. Now we get to the point that I've been talking about. Therefore, again, therefore, because of what we just said, what does it say? Imitate God as beloved, beloved children. children. Right. 
Now we have that. Oh, I'm his child. Yes, yes. You're his child. Naturally, we wouldn't lie. You would tell the truth because God doesn't lie. God doesn't steal. He gives. God doesn't curse. He blesses. God doesn't. Uh, God shows favor to everybody. Show favor. Imitate your father. Imitate your papa. Because you're his child. Created on the basis of his righteousness and his holiness. According to him. Oh, and by the way, walk in love just as Jesus did. He gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to who? To God. And that's the way it is. When you love others, you are offering yourself to God for the sake of someone else. You're offering yourself to God for the sake of those around you. You have to do that intellectually in, in a context that makes sense, but that's how it works. And he goes, blah, blah, blah. Don't, again, look at verse 3. Immorality, impurity, greed, not to be named among your name is not to be associated with it. Why? Why is my name not to be associated with it? Because it's wrong? No, because it's not proper among a holy one. I'm a holy one. You're a holy one. Is it proper to have a holy one's name associated with greed or impurity or immorality? No, no, because the holy ones aren't internally greedy, impure, or um, immoral. So if your name in the flesh is associated with those qualities, that's not consistent with who you are on the inside. Verse 5, put away all silly talk, so forth and so on. He says, which is not fitting but rather giving thanks. Verse four, right? Giving thanks, not fitting. In other words, it doesn't fit my life. A lot, of, a lot of people who struggle with various things, all you have to do is ask yourself, does this fit my life as God's child? Does it fit? A lot, we're, you know, he says all things are, 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 are there for me to do, but does it fit? Is it expedient? Does it make sense? Does it make sense? Does it fit my life? That's the, 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 the discussion of a child of God. How does a child of God think? Well, does it fit? Does this purchase fit? Does the, do these words fit? Does this activity fit? Does this ambition fit? Does it fit the life of a, of a saint first? And does it fit my life, particularly in my context of life? Only you can answer that. Then he says, for this you know that no... Uh, certainly with certainty that no immoral person, no covetous man, no idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of God in Christ. Let no one deceive with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's right. God's wrath through Christ will come upon the sons of disobedience. But he says, don't be partners with them. Why? For you were formerly darkness, but no longer. You are light in the Lord. It doesn't say you shine like light. It says you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light, right? Walk out who you are. What does light do? Well, light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. So good as opposed to bad, right as opposed to wrong, truth as opposed to error. So when you walk out through your life, you're going to be a light. If somebody says, blah, 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 and you, they go, right? And you go, mm, no, I can't agree with that. And all of a sudden, now you've been a light, Right? So it's, it's uh, you don't have to go looking to be a light in the world. You just walk in it and you will walk in newness of life. No, it's not a matter of whether it happened. It's a, it's a matter of whether you believe it. All this is true. If you believe it, this makes total sense to you. And you'll be like, of course, I'm going to walk out my sonship. I'm going to walk out who I am as God's child. Of course, 
Because I, you, walk up, you wake up every day happy because of who you are, but then there's the ambition to, to like, hmm, I've got to learn how to walk that out because my flesh is very clever and the world is very evil and there's all these draws and I've got lots of iniquity from my past and I've got to figure out how to maneuver through this bad boy. Right? But it starts with I have to believe who I am. If I believe I'm God's child and he is this person and I am who I am, that that's the person I'm seeking to become. Not, oh, I need, it's odd. I was bad, I did that. It was good, I did this. Or I need to do this. Or I should do that. All that's law, 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 law. Rather than, does this fit a saint's life? Does this make sense? Is it proper for this, right? Would my father in the same situation, how did he behave, right? Did he show favor or did he curse the person? When my father gets angry, does he sin? No, he doesn't sin. Therefore, I'm not going to sin because I'm his child. In other words, this is the discussion because it's a discussion based on faith. It's not based on works, based on faith. And every single new covenant book is the same. If you read it properly, all you're reading is this is the gospel, this is who you are, and this is the logic of how that works itself out in a very elementary and kindergarten type of way. The Bible is extremely simple if you read it with faith. If you read it trying to, you know, be smart, then it's going to be confusing. And so I encourage you always, you know, make sure that when you read it, your faith is accompanying your reading. That's slowing down, seeking to understand and seeking to believe that which is in the new covenant about you because it's absolutely magnificent news. It's absolutely magnificent. You get to wake up every day knowing that God created you internally on the basis of his own divine nature, righteous and good and pure and true, and that you're fit for eternity because of that, and that nothing can take that away. It's eternal life. He did it. You can't undo it, right? It's impossible. And if you don't have that in you, you say, well, what about people who walk away? What do you think? Does somebody, yeah, God didn't birth them from above. People, people don't get birthed from above and walk away. Is somebody who's got, is created on God's divine nature going to walk away from him? Does that even make sense? Right? So, of course they're not. It's utterly ridiculous. People don't walk away when they're made from above. Jesus said, it's a wellspring of life bubbling up from within. And that's a, that happens because of his grace and you. So, I hope that was helpful. Let's, yep. When you quoted Hebrews 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews, yeah. Uh, yeah. That for he who comes must believe that he is and he's a reward that diligently yep. seek him. There is, there is an aspect of tying that with those who Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will I to the degree that does the will of my Father, over the years, I've seen that there are there are those that seek God's hand for what they can receive from Him. Yes. But there are those who seek His face for approval, counsel, and guidance. And there's a really vast difference tying those two groups together. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Briefly. I did. Giver, not a taker. <laughs> right. Be a giver, not a taker. In other words, obviously, if you're a child of God, you're going to develop into being a person who gives to God and gives to Christ by loving your brother. That's the whole point of the faith and the love. It's going to develop out of you. 
as opposed to going to God to seek what you can get for your glory, your advancement, your monetary gain, whatever it is, your honor, your, your, your notoriety in the world, all of those types of things, of course. And that was the Matthew 7 situation. You know, you see a lot of people who have a, miracles don't justify your salvation, right? Preaching doesn't justify your salvation. How much you know the Bible doesn't justify your salvation. Only thing that justifies salvation is being born from above based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your payment for sin and being birthed from above. That's what brings you to salvation. And if that's real, you will develop in love. Thus, you'll be a giver rather than a taker. You know, but yeah, it's good stuff. All right, I'm gonna close in prayer and we'll enjoy some fellowship, some food, and get nuts over there. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for our time. I pray that... Um, you would increase our faith as you talk about. Pray that our faith would be increased, that we'd be strengthened in our belief that um, when you come, you said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I would hope that here you'll find it and that you are finding it in our lives, in our homes, and that together uh, we bring pleasure to you and that our lives are joy to you because we seek to walk with you, to know you, to enjoy you, to relate to the Father and to you as, as the Lord over all things. Our Lord in the flesh and, and, and um, our brother in the spirit. And so we pray as both Lord and our brother and our friend, we give you thanks for your great love, your great act of faith to die for us to pay for sin, and to establish God's righteousness. And we thank you so very much for that. And Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given a name worthy for us to appeal to you on, to come boldly into your throne room, to seek your face, and that you joyfully open your arms and receive us. We can boldly come into your throne through our prayers because of Jesus Christ, and his name is worthy for us to enter. And so I thank you so very much. And that now you've made us your children. Help us, Lord, to believe that which is true. Though, as you say through your spirit, help us to stare at that which is unseen, for that which is unseen is eternal, but that which is seen is temporal. And so help us to stare at the unseen and to walk in that newness of life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.